Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, how are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 6. We are taking a pause from our series through the Sermon on the Mount to consider baptism and its meaning and significance in the life of a Christian and a local church. And we're doing that today because this morning we have the privilege of seeing three folks from Cross Point Church be baptized. It's not that every time we do baptism we stop and teach on baptism, but occasionally we think it's a good and wise thing to do. And so uh, if you will uh, take one, if you hopefully you have your own Bible. If you don't, we'd love for you to find uh, one of the Bibles that's in the rack in front of you in the chair. If you don't own a Bible, as always, keep that Bible as yours, our gift to you. And we'd love for you to open that and, and find Romans chapter 6. If you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, you can find Romans 6 on page 942 or 739. Both of those Bibles that you may have, different page numbers mentioned up there, same version of the Bible, just different printings of it. So that's why there's different page numbers. We'd love for you to keep that Bible. Now, we're going to read a lot of Scripture today. Um, so we're going to put uh, all the Scripture that we read up on the screen. But I think you'd really be helped by at least opening to Romans 6 and, and seeing those, those words, God's words to His people uh, for yourself. As you're finding that, on this Veterans Day weekend, I guess it's coming up Wednesday, I just, I'm so grateful uh, for the veterans that are in this room, there are men in this room this morning that are deployed in Afghanistan. Uh, we're so grateful for them. I want to pray for them. And also, one of our veterans, I guess he's technically a veteran, although he's currently still serving in the uh, Army, is Oki and his wife, Caroline Osborne. And this is their last Sunday at Crosspoint because they are going away to a crazy little place we like to call Japan. And Oki is going to be a general's aide, is that right? And so uh, Caroline has been here at this church for many years, and this handsome lieutenant came sauntering through and met her and married her, and they went away. He was deployed uh, to combat once or twice maybe. Now he's been back at Fort Benning, and um, they are going away to Japan for a couple years. So they're right down here in the front. So if you know uh, Oki and Caroline, um, be sure to love on them and pray for them. And today, Caroline's uh, one of her... Uh, brothers is going to be baptized, and so I know that'll be. Joy. We love you guys, and um, we, we will miss you. Uh, we pray God go before you as you go to Japan. All right, so Romans chapter 6 is where we find ourselves today. I want to answer, or I want to make two points that I think uh, is important for a Christian and a local church to understand. And I think uh, that, that these are points that are simple and clearly biblical. That oftentimes in the uh, kind of world of American church life, these points oftentimes get blurred, and we tend to get in ruts. We get in ruts with everything, but we especially get in ruts spiritually. And sometimes we get in a rut with something as important and beautiful and and, and as important as baptism and what it means. Sometimes it's just kind of a tradition that we just sort of go through. Uh, Maybe it's... uh, church that you grew up and did it a particular way, and you haven't really thought deeply about what it means. Well, this morning, I want to make two points from our text, and then we're going to kind of be all over the Bible. We're going to look at these two points and just stare at them and try and unpack what what the scriptures say about them. Point number one is that baptism, God gives baptism to make the gospel visible. That's not the only way that he makes the gospel visible. There are many other means and ways that God intends to display the glory of the work and the Son on the cross. But one of the primary purposes for baptism, in fact, I would say maybe the primary purpose of baptism, is to make the gospel, the work of his Son on the cross, visible. So that's what baptism is for. Secondly, the second point that I want to make is that baptism is intended also by God to make the church visible. Now, of course, there are other ways that he makes the church visible, that he puts the church on display for an onlooking world. But through baptism, he makes, he intends to make his people visible to an onlooking world. So those are the two points that we're going to look at today. We're going to peel back and examine. Baptism, what we're going to see celebrated in three of our brothers and sisters this morning, intends by God to make the gospel visible 
and to make the church, the people of God, visible to an onlooking world. So with that, let me read Romans chapter 6, just verses 3 and 4. Probably the weightiest, most theological verses in the Bible about what baptism means. And then once we're going to read that, we're going to just kind of work through those two points there. Baptism makes the gospel visible, and baptism makes the church visible. So let me read Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and four. And you know, you do well. I always feel a little bad when we just read a couple verses, when we just sort of parachute down into a chapter and cherry pick something out of it. You know that drives me nuts, right? We're doing it today just because we're looking at this idea of baptism. But oh, you'd do really well to uh, read all of Romans chapter six today. And it'll just put steel in your spine to fight sin. Um, it's not quite the most important chapter in the Bible. That's a couple chapters later in Romans chapter eight. But it, I mean, it's like if Casey Kasin was playing top 40, um, this, this would be, uh, it'd be, it'd be top 10 at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is super legit. All right, actually the whole Bible is, is important. <laughs> I get into trouble every time I go down that road, I'm sorry. Okay, Romans 6. Really, the whole book of Romans. I mean, I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, so good. Okay, Romans 6, verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul talking. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, this is a glorious text. These are magnificent truths. We need your help. I need your help. Would you help us, please, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. For those of us that are trusting in Christ in this room, would you deepen our love for Jesus and what he has done, for what you have done through your Son, that you've made us able to see by your Spirit, and would it deepen our worship for you and love for one another. And for my friends that are in this room that are not yet trusting in Jesus, I pray that by your sovereign mercy, you would open their eyes, that you would give them a new heart. Even as we sang this morning, that our hearts are, we, we, we're born by nature with hearts of stone. And we need to be brought back to life to even be able to see who you are and believe in you. Something has to happen to us before we can do anything So God, would you do that for my friends that are in this room who are dead spiritually and blind to the gospel. Would you make them alive so that they can see the surpassing beauty of Jesus and put all of their hope in him and walk in the newness of life. Lord, do these things for just the glory of your name and for the joy of your people, I pray. You do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so point number one, baptism makes the gospel visible. Okay, so I want to make a few caveats before we start to look just wide-angle lens at this, at this idea of how the gospel makes, or how baptism makes the gospel visible. First, let me just say a few uh, things before we get rolling here is that I want you to know clearly that baptism, what we're about to see, witness, that we're about to witness, see displayed in the lives of three people, does not save us. We know that from many scriptures, and, and it, the Bible clearly tells us otherwise. I think there are some uh, people throughout the history that have attached a sort of saving grace or saving merit to the act of baptism, and that is just clearly unbiblical. We see in many other parts of the Bible where we are saved by our faith in Christ alone. And even that faith that we have is a gift of grace from God. And so salvation is not something that comes from the inside of us, but from the outside of us. God makes us alive, gives us faith, whereby we place that faith in the object of salvation, which is Jesus, who we're going to talk about a whole lot today. So baptism does not save us. Rather, it is a public profession of repentance and faith of something that has happened to the believer already. It is an external profession of an internal work. Now, no analogy is perfect, but I think a helpful analogy 
for baptism is that it's kind of like a passport, like a, a citizen's a passport, like an American passport, okay? I am an American because I was born in America. Actually, just barely. I mean, like I, just one mile in the south, I would have not been an American. I guess my parents, anyway, you understand. My parents are American. I'm pretty sure they're American. Um, but, but anyway, I was born real close to the Mexican border. But I, we, are, we are Americans. If you're a citizen of this country or if you're a citizen of another country, you are a citizen of that country by nature of your birth there, right? So then later on as you grow up and you want, to, you, want to, uh, you want to make a statement about your citizenship so that you can have benefits of that citizenship, you have to get a passport. And when you get that passport, that passport doesn't make you an American. It just displays to an onlooking world that you are, in fact, an American. Again, you could poke holes in that analogy, but I think that's, that's a helpful one. So, baptism is kind of like a passport. Before we get deep into it, though, let's, let's take a wide-angle lens of what, what the gospel is and how, because before we can really understand how baptism makes the gospel visible, I think we need to understand from a wide angle what the gospel is. Now, you, you know we get to it every Sunday, and usually it's a little bit later on. We're going to get right into it from the very front because you need to see what the gospel is and how then baptism makes that, that gospel visible. So you see in that text that we read in Romans chapter 6, there's this really important phrase where he says that we, at the end of 3, it says, Jesus, we were baptized into his death. And then in verse 4, it says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into Jesus' death. That little phrase there, that Jesus' death, we're baptized into his death, clues us into this fact that God has always, always, from before the beginning of time, had a plan, and it includes judgment. It includes the death of of his son. So let's take a wide angle lens of the scripture. In fact, let's, don't flip there, but just maybe jot this down if, if, if you're the type of person that likes to take notes and jot down scriptures. At the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, the apostle John is writing about at the end times there will be this great battle and there will be these beasts that appear that will, that will, the, uh, uh, People will worship. People that are not believers in Jesus, Jesus will worship. And then in Revelation 13, verse 8, there's this clear reference to this book of life and that people whose names are not written in the book of life are not believers and they will worship this beast. But everybody whose name is written in this book of life will not worship the beast because they are God's true children. And it says in Revelation 13, verse 8, about this book of life, that it is the book of life of the Lamb, meaning Jesus, who was slain, Jesus' death, before the foundations of the earth. Okay, so that's, that's cluing us into this death that we read about in Romans chapter 6 is not something that came upon the scene 2,000 years ago in, in, in Jesus' life. It had been planned for before the foundations of the earth. Paul gets even more specific in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to how the apostle Paul describes the origins of redemption or the beginning of the gospel. He says this in Ephesians 1. In fact, we just sang this in that song, Grace Alone. We just sang these very words. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let me pause there and say, Paul is writing to Christians. This is not a blanket statement that applies to everybody just because you have a pulse. He's writing to people who are in Christ, who have placed their hope and trust. They've turned from their sin. They're putting their hope in Christ. Verse 4 Listen to this, so important. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in 
the beloved. Now, we can spend a whole lot of time, and we have before, unpacking all of the, the, the truths that are in that verse. But here's, I just want you to see one thing. I'm trying to, trying to uh, incrementally make a point here. And it is that, notice verse 4, that God chose a group of people, through whatever means we could debate that, but he chose a group of people in him before the foundation of the world, and then he predestined them for adoption. That's a biblical way of saying salvation through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So before the foundations of the world, God had a plan to put his saving love on a group of people through Jesus Christ for his wise purposes to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay? So uh, you need to see that. What's going on is that the death of Jesus that we are buried into in some way that we're going to see here in, in baptism is not something that God had to kind of come up with to react to the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. All of this in the counsel of God's glorious will in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before anything has been created, has been salvation and redemption, Jesus' death, our salvation has been planned. Do you see that? So there's something going on here about this gospel. It's not a reaction. It's in the eternal plan of God. So as we're going to see in a moment, that this baptism is meant to display that. A couple implications here, and uh, I just think it's super important that we just sort of make these little rabbit trails occasionally, occasionally as we think, as we live life in a world that is just archaic and seems chaotic. Uh, something that this should encourage us in as we look at how God did all of this, planned all of this, planned the death of Jesus uh, before the foundations of the world. It should encourage us that if the fall of mankind did not sneak up on God, if the most cataclysmic event in the universe did not sneak up on God, therefore we know that nothing else sneaks up on God, right? If you can bench 300 pounds, you can bench 200 pounds, right? And so if God is over-orchestrating everything in some kind, mysterious, gracious way, and he's over it all, he's not surprised whoever's going to be elected president in 2016. I know some of you are gritting your teeth, just holding on, saying, what's going to happen? And it's something that we should be concerned about, and we should vote. And if you can vote twice, vote twice if you're from Chicago. And if you're from Florida and you need extra instructions on how to fill out a ballot, we'll give them to you. You should vote. God uses means to do all this kind of stuff. But here's what I'm saying. No matter what happens in 2016, no matter what happens in Syria, no matter what directions this demonic force called ISIS takes, God is in utter control. He says through the prophet Isaiah that he declares the end from the beginning. And when he says things through his apostle Paul that he has orchestrated redemption, friends, everything falls underneath that. Nothing, no tyrant, no terrorist, no dictator, no stock market, no presidential candidate, no cancer cell, nothing is outside of his superintending glorious will. Now, we, have, we need to have all sorts of discussions about how we work through all those things. Yes, yes, yes. But God is in complete control. And he has, before the foundations of the earth, determined to kill his son on the cross for the saving of his people and then raise his son in victory over death, sin, and the grave as a display of his glory over this fall that he, in some kind and mysterious way, ordained. So God has planned it. Then we see it actually happen. Man falls. Genesis 3 verse 15, an important verse where uh, God at the fall speaks to Adam and Eve and he, he judges them. He, 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 he casts them away from his presence and they are spiritually dead now. To be apart from God is to be cut off from the only source of life, which is God. It is to be spiritually dead. But even as he judges them, he promises to save them, and he speaks a word of hope. And at this point, he's actually speaking to the serpent, who is the, is, is, is the personification of the devil in that moment. And he says to the serpent, he says that the seed of this woman, Eve, who you have deceived and tricked, the seed of this woman is going to come, and it's going to crush your head, right? And that reference, that little glimmer of hope on the horizon, horizon is a reference to the seed of 
uh, Eve, which is Jesus, the God who will become man, who will eventually, by his work on the cross, his death, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection, put his foot on the serpent's head, as Romans 16 says, and crush Satan under our feet. So God judges, but God gives hope and promises to save. And then we see the population of the earth begin. Adam and Eve populate the earth, and people are wicked. The world is a broken, fallen place. And we see God begin to give us a picture of how he is going to judge the world. And he does it kind of in a, in a sort of Old Testament sort of uh, uh, like uh, pre-like way. And he judges the world through water. And we see this in Genesis chapter 6 where people are so messed up. He says, man, these people... I'm, gonna, I'm, not, I'm not quoting verbatim here, but God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to destroy everybody. And I'm going to choose one man, and I'm going to give him my favor, and I'm going to pull him out of this world, him and his family, Noah. I'm going to give him my favor, and I am going to judge the world through the waters of the flood. And that's the story of Genesis chapter 6. We see then God judging the world through water. But this is a kind of shadow of the judgment that will come later at the end of time. And we see God do this again. He grabs this one man and his family. He judges the whole world through this water. Then he starts again with Noah and his family, and he starts to populate the earth. And then from one of Noah's descendants, he grabs this one guy named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a people through you. And my plan has always been to allow, create, allow the fall, and then to make a people out of those fall, all the fallen humanity. And this one people, I'm going to love, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nurture them, and I'm going to make them my people. And eventually, through this people, I'm going to give a Savior. And so he calls Abraham, and he makes a nation called Israel. And Israel finds itself in captivity at the end of Genesis and at the beginning of Exodus, and God raises up a leader named Moses, and he says, Moses, speak to the Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And he refuses, and God sends all of these plagues, and, 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 and God begins to, to gather his people. And then we see God again judging with water. He gathers all of his people by Uh, the leadership of Moses, and they get to the edge of the Red Sea as they're fleeing Egypt, and God opens up the Red Sea, and he causes his people to pass through it safely, and then as the Egyptian soldiers and chariots come to chase God's people who he is saving, he causes the water to fall in over them and to judge them and destroy them. And what's going on there at the Red Sea is a kind of picture of salvation that God is going to save his people, not because they were good, but because of his grace. Because of his grace alone, he is going to save them and he is going to rescue them through the waters of judgment. He is going to cause them to pass through the waters and escape the waters of judgment. And then he is going to cause the waters of judgment to crash in on his enemies. So he, he saves his people from judgment, but the judgment of the waters crash in on all of those who are not his people. And so then the New Testament continues. He gathers his pe- or the Old Testament continues. He gathers his people and he begins this plan. He just, all along in the Old Testament, there's this unfolding plan of redemption of this gospel that has been promised that is gonna come to fulfillment in his son. And he begins to get more specific and he promises judgment on his people if they don't obey him, but he also promises a savior. So one of the key verses in the Bible is Ephesians 34. Uh, Verses 6 and 7, we'll have it up on the screen. Listen to this. God is having a conversation with Moses, and he's beginning to be more specific about how he will finally and fully save his people. And he's, he's communicating to Moses his character. Listen to what he says in Exodus 34, starting in verse 6, and just half of verse 7. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Listen to this last sentence. It's so important. 
forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So that seems contradictory. God says, I am going to forgive sin, but I'm going to by no means clear the guilty. The problem is everybody's guilty. And the history of God's people in the Old Testament is they can do nothing to make themselves not guilty. So God is saying there that I'm going to forgive people, but I'm going to judge the guilty. So it starts to give us this, this sense that how is he going to do that? How is he going to forgive a great multitude of people who can't do anything to make themselves forgivable? How is he going to forgive all these people, but yet still judge the guilty? It would have been just easier and made more sense if he would have just said, I'm going to judge everybody. And we would all have to say, yeah, you probably should again. You know, you did it in Genesis 6. You probably should do it again. But God is saying here that he's, it's in seed form and he's going to be more and more specific with it. He's saying that there's going to be a way that I am going to forgive my people. And we see it prophesied later on in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. He says, and this is Isaiah speaking hundreds of years before about God the Son, Jesus the Son. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was, verse 5, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In other words, none of us have done anything to make ourselves forgivable. We've all like sheep gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. Verse, last part of the verse there. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So there is the answer to the dilemma of the verse we just read in Exodus 34. Everybody's guilty, and he's going to judge the guilty. But then he's going to bring a substitute, a servant, who will substitute himself and take the punishment for a great multitude of people, and he will bear the punishment that should be theirs. What is Isaiah 53 talking about? It's talking about the cross. It's talking about the work of Jesus in his sin-bearing sacrificial work on the cross. So now we fast forward to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we see this unfolding gospel that was in shadow form in the Old Testament become a reality in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have a narrative, a historical narrative of Jesus' perfect life, his voluntary, sacrificial death, and his glorious, victorious resurrection. And then we see in the epistles, the writers of the New Testament letters, the apostles, then looking back on Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and giving us a, a teaching, a, a sense of what it means. So Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He, meaning Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So Jesus is the one that Isaiah was talking about who bears the iniquity of his people. Then listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Another really important chapter. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember, all of us are, all of us are sinful. None of us are forgivable. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, that's a biblical way of saying made right with God, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, so important, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So here's this all-important word in the New Testament, propitiation. What does that word mean? Propitiation is a word that means wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And that's what Jesus has done on the cross. He has substituted himself in our place 
bore the punishment that should have been ours. Doesn't this sound familiar? Isn't that what Isaiah said he was going to do? He's done it now. He bears all of the punishment. And because he is fully God and a perfect man, he has enough holiness and righteousness, in fact, an infinite amount of holiness and righteousness, that he can bear all of the sin and all of the iniquity of all that would ever turn and trust in him. And so Jesus bears, he takes all of the punishment. My favorite dead person, Charles Spurgeon, said that Jesus, that was a little abrupt, wasn't it? My favorite dead person kind of came out of nowhere, jolted you, whatever. My favorite, my historical hero, Charles Spurgeon says that on the cross, Jesus drank damnation dry. He drank it. He extinguished it. He removed it. That's what propitiation means. He takes all of our punishment and he turns what would have been punishment into favor, right? So let's go back to Romans chapter six. It says that we were baptized into his death. So it's starting to come together, I hope, for you now. This plan that God had before the foundations of the earth was to create, to allow this creation to fall, and then to save a great multitude of this creation through, through the death and resurrection of his son. And all of this has been planned, as Paul has told us in Ephesians 1, before the foundations of the earth. And then Paul is telling us in our main text, Romans 6, that this baptism that we have, that we participate in as Christians, that we, as we are baptized, is meant to display that death. It's meant to picture, let's just tie it together. Remember we talked about how God judges through water in the Old Testament? He judges the world in the flood. Then he judges his enemies, Egypt, in Exodus. Water is meant to be a kind of judgment. And then he judges Jesus on the cross, even though Jesus is completely innocent. Water is a picture of God's judgment. And so in that baptismal pool, that water that you were dunked under when you, became ba- when you were baptized, and the water that our, 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 our sister and two brothers are about to be, go under is not just, oh, well, that's kind of a strange little peculiar thing that Christians do, just kind of go under water. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. No, it is picturing the waters of judgment that fell in on Jesus, and we were in him, and now the punishment that should have been ours, Jesus has completely taken care of for us. And when we go down in the baptismal waters, we are saying, we are displaying the gospel that Jesus has been judged for us and has taken the judgment in our stead. But we don't stay under the water. Because what happens next, right? We don't hold people down, right? We do not, thank God. We do not hold people down. Why don't we hold people down in the baptismal waters? Because Jesus got up from the grave and defeated the baptismal waters of judgment. And that's what he says there. So in back to our verse, Romans 6, it says that we were baptized into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, from the waters of judgment, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. In other words, in baptism, the water is meant to picture that we are in Christ. He's been judged for us. He's removed it. He's the perfect man. He's satisfied it. He didn't need to be judged, but he substituted himself for us. And now we are in him. Judgment has been covered. And now when he gets up from the grave and we get up from the water, we are proclaiming that we are now alive because Jesus has made us alive. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Verses four through seven, but God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So make no mistake, friends, it's not like, oh, well, this seems like a rational argument. I think I'm going to put my, uh, all of my, my thinking cap on, and I am going to deduce and come to the conclusion that this makes sense. Friends, that's not it. The Bible says that we're dead in our sins and that we can do nothing to see this. And God, when he saves a person, makes them alive. He resurrects them. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So just as Jesus came back from the dead in the baptismal waters when we get up from them. It is a symbol of what God has done in us because of Christ. He brings us back to life, and he can do that because he's defeated death in his son on the cross in his resurrection. And so, friends, do you see the clear picture here of what baptism is? It's not just this church ritual. Baptism is meant to display the gospel. We were dead in our sins. We could do nothing to make ourselves right with God. Jesus came, bore the judgment waters of God's wrath for us, and then rose again in victory over them because he was the innocent God-man. And now when he saves a person, he makes them alive, and he takes them back from the dead, and he resurrects them. And now to give the onlooking world a picture of that, he he puts us in that baptismal pool and says, you were dead in your sins, but Jesus took the punishment for you as you go down into that water. And now all of God's condemnation, as Romans 8, 1 says, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those, those who are in Christ Jesus. All of God's condemnation that should have and justifiably was ours, Jesus took. And then he rose again and gave us new life, and he gave us the ability, he gave us the gift of faith, and it's a gift, as Ephesians 2 says, lest anyone should boast, so that we can be in Christ. So baptism, friends, clearly pictures the gospel. This is what one author says. He says, baptism renders repentance and faith, death and life visible. It gives the believer, the church, and the onlooking world something to look at. It's a picture, it's an object lesson of salvation. The baptism makes the gospel visible quickly now. Baptism makes the church visible as well, very quickly. Baptism not only makes the gospel visible, it's God's way of displaying who his people are. Baptism is not just going public with your personal faith, but it is a public profession of allegiance to Christ and his body, which is his church, his people. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. He says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, some people might say, wait a minute, Brad. In that text, Paul is referring to spirit baptism, which is what God does at the moment of faith, the moment of conversion, and that that what's happening there is that uh, the baptism that Paul is referring to there is that what happens at the moment of conversion when the Spirit of God dwells in, dwells in you. Yes, I think that is clearly what Paul is saying there, but I think if you read the whole rest of the New Testament, you would see that Paul and the New Testament writers do not differentiate between spirit baptism and water baptism. They think it's the, I think they, they see it as just different parts of the same whole of salvation, that water baptism is our response to the baptism of the Spirit that makes us alive and puts us into the body. And so there's this clear sense that when we become Christians, we are baptized by the Spirit, and then publicly we profess that we're doing more than individually saying, this is what happened to me, but we're saying this is what, who I am now connecting myself to, Christ who is the head and his body, which is the church. 
We see that in Galatians 3, I think, as well, verses 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, sons and daughters. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there's a sense that when we come into Christ, we are now part of the family of God. So baptism is not meant to be an isolated individual event that merely proclaims your personal faith. But in the New Testament and in the history of the church, it is something that the church does. And it is something that we do in the context of the local church to proclaim our allegiance to Christ and his body. We see this, I think, clearly in Colossians chapter 2. We'll have it up on the screen in just a moment. And we see in this text that God gives baptism to do more than just let them proclaim their individual faith in him and display the gospel but he gives baptism. Now, I want you to follow the thinking here. This is, this is, I think it's really important for us to see. He gives baptism to be a kind of mark of his people, to mark off his people as a kind of, well, it's a kind of passport issuing. He gives baptism to kind of show the world, this is my church. And I think we see that in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let me read it. In him... You also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That little phrase there that just seems strange to us, the circumcision of Christ, it isn't referring to the actual circumcision of, of Jesus, but it's referring to how he was cut, not to the act of circumcision, but how he was cut on the cross. So the circumcision of Christ is Paul's phrase of how Jesus' body was cut for us on the cross. He was, it's the work of Jesus. So we were, sacrificed with a circ- we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ or by the cross, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So I want you to see the point that Paul is making here. He is linking... Spiritual circumcision, which is faith, which is our conscious faith in what Jesus has done, which is salvation with baptism. Now, let me just make one little aside here, and I know that we have some friends in this room and some dear ones, members of this church, who would believe that the Bible advocates for baptizing infants. I think, and sometimes they use this text as a sort of explanation of that, and they would say, aha, in the Old Testament, they baptized, or they circumcised infants, and so there's a sort of correlation between circumcision as God's way of marking off his people. That's how they knew who were Jews, by circumcision, and then they would say, in the New Testament, God shows who his people are by baptism, and Paul puts these two things together, circumcision and baptism, in the same text, and so we see there's a link there, and just as they baptize, or just as they circumcised infants in the Old Testament, so we should baptize infants in the New Testament, and that's the logic, one of the points of logic they would, that they would use there, but I think Paul is actually making a different case. He's not linking physical circumcision with baptism. He's linking spiritual circumcision, that you were made a Christian by a circumcision that was made without hands. He's linking conversion. He's saying that when you put your faith and hope in God, that's when you became spiritually circumcised, and that should be marked off by baptism. And I think the clear implication there is, is that like God used circumcision in the Old Testament, But in a different way, now circumcision, now spiritually, he's whittling down, being clearer and clearer and clearer about who true people of God are. He intends to mark off his people by baptism. And who is baptism for? It's for those who have been spiritually circumcised, whose hearts have been put put their hope and faith in what Jesus has done as he was raised from the dead. So, in conclusion, before we see this glorious sign lived out before us, what am I not saying? As we began, I'm clearly not saying that baptism saves. But I'm saying that God intends to give 
baptism as a display of his gospel. And he intends to use it to show an onlooking world, these are my people. It doesn't mean that a person who is trusting in Christ that has not been baptized is not one of God's people. But it means that God has given baptism to show that person in an onlooking world that they are part of God's people. And so they should do it. They should be baptized. So how should we respond to this? If you're a Christian and you have been baptized, you should worship God for your salvation. Right? You should worship God. Because when you see our three dear ones go down into the water, it's more than just some symbolic Christian thing. It is a picture of the wrath of God that was barreling down on your head that Jesus, by His grace, intercepted for you. And He took it. And it's not just for the guy who was a heroin addict or a bank robber or a criminal. It's for the good little church kid that grew up in a church in Columbus, Georgia, who at a very young age, God, just as miraculously for them as He did for the criminal later on in life, brought them back from death so that they could see, praise God for them, that it happened at an early age, but he intercepted God's wrath through no merit of their own. And so whether you grew up in the church or you came to faith later in life, when we see our friends go down into those pools of judgment, we should see the gospel and praise God that we were not saved from a stubbed toe or a less than optimal life. We were saved from the just and right wrath of God that all of us deserve because of our sin. And that should cause us to worship God. And we weren't just saved from judgment. We were raised into the newness of life, which is the resurrection, which is the Christian life. And we should love one another more deeply because we've been baptized into this body called the church. If you are an unbaptized Christian, you should obey God by being baptized. Let your faith and your allegiance to Christ and his people go public. You should be baptized. Why wouldn't you want to be? Why wouldn't you want to proclaim the gospel and declare your allegiance to God's people? Because you don't want to get embarrassed by getting wet in front of a bunch of people? That's the seat of pride. That's, that's, that's the, that's, that's, come on, friend. Even the, I mean, there's, there's humility in that, and that's kind of part of it, isn't it? And then thirdly, if you're not a Christian, this is meant to picture salvation. It's meant to picture the gospel. It's meant to picture the righteousness of God. That, if you are outside of Christ, will catch up with you and will overtake you It will overtake you like the floodwaters overtook the inhabitants of all the earth in Genesis 6. It will overtake you like the Red Sea overtook the Egyptians in Exodus 14. It will overtake you. There is a tsunami. There is a tidal wave of God's just and right judgment coming to the shoreline of your soul, and eternity unless you are in Christ. Because you, dear friend, cannot bear the judgment of God on your own. You need a substitute and the good news of the gospel is that he has provided a substitute for you, and it's Jesus. And so you need to, you must turn away from trusting in yourself 
and put your hope and faith in Jesus. And right now, you probably have a thousand questions and a bunch of objections. Friends, I am not saying that you need to iron out every wrinkle in your soul. I am saying that there is a tsunami of judgment that is barreling down on all humanity that is outside of Christ. And in God's gracious kindness, he has provided an escape. He's not only provided an escape, he's provided life. If you will turn from trusting in your own weak wisdom and your own merit and your own righteousness and your own intelligence, and you will put your hope and faith in what Jesus has done to bear the floodwaters of judgment for you, if you will turn from your sin and put your hope in him, do it even now. Don't wait for a card to fill out or for me to coach you on a prayer. If you're seeing that, if you're sensing that, if your heart is pounding, you need to turn away from yourself and put your hope in Jesus. And you, even if you are hearing this and sensing that this is what you need to do, friends, that is evidence that God is giving you the very thing that he requires of you, which is a new heart and faith. Do you see that? If you can even see this, that's God making you alive. So as a baby coming out of the womb, you don't need to do anything. You need to breathe. And put your hope in Jesus. Do it now. Do it now. Unanswered questions, let's talk about it later. Look away from yourself. Put your hope in Jesus and say, Jesus, I got a lot of questions, but I know that judgment is coming and I need to get in an ark and you are the ark. Do it now. Do it now before you leave this room. Well, let's see this pictured in front of us. If you're being baptized as I pray, come on up and get ready to get baptized and we'll have some friends reading their testimonies for them. Father, as we now turn our attention to the baptismal pool, Lord, would, would we worship you more deeply if we're a Christian? Would we love the body more passionately if we're a Christian? Would we obey you in this sign if we have not done it? And Lord, if, if, if a person is in this room and they're not yet trusting in Christ, let them see the terrible and beautiful truth of the gospel, the terrible truth that we are dead in our sins and judgment is coming, but the beautiful truth that there is a way out, there's an ark, there's life, there's resurrection, there's hope, there's salvation in Christ, in Christ alone. Lord, let them see that and put their hope and faith in Jesus. And Lord, let us celebrate your gospel through baptism. In Jesus' name, amen.